Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, December 3, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, Professors Joanne Freeman and Carol Birkin discuss the intense political partisanship and outbreaks of physical violence on the floor of the U.S. Congress in the years leading up to the Civil War. Those of you who are regulars here know that Joanne and I have done a duo before, <laughs> but this one is about this fabulous new book that she has written and that I have a whole list of questions about. I want to start by asking you to tell us, and, and Alexander Hamilton will not be mentioned in this, <laughs> right? But you just did, this, so. Yes, that's true. <laughs> The narrator, in a sense, of your book, or the source for your book, is Benjamin Brown French, who, though I, of course, know everything, had never heard of him. (laughs) So I want to know how you came across this pot of gold for your book, and who's your guide through the decades, and has anyone else ever dived into his journal? Yeah, well... um I, I thank Benjamin Brown French all the time, since he basically helped me figure out how to tell the story at the heart of the book. The book talks about 70 violent incidents in the House and Senate chambers that I pieced together that were censored out of the congressional record. And the big challenge of the book after figuring out the fighting was how do you tell that story, right? I, each one of those fights could have been a chapter, I couldn't figure out how to tell the story. And I, I thought, okay, well, it would be great if there were a person that I could hang the story on and people would meet this person at the beginning of the book. And I tried one or two different people. Benjamin Brown French works for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and I think one is that he's not well-known. He was a minor clerk. For a little while, he was the clerk of the House, but mostly he was a minor clerk in the House of Representatives. He happens to have been in Washington the whole period that I'm writing about. And there are two things about him that are amazing. One of them is that he wrote everything down. He was a clerk. He liked writing things down. So he had an 11-volume diary. Exactly. Oh, I love the diary noise everybody just made. Yes. (laughs) It was an amazing diary. And he doesn't just write down boring details. He talks about what he's thinking and what he feels and what he hears and what he sees. He even occasionally writes down what the fights sound like. (laughs) Hit him, hit him, you know, so it's it's kind of amazing all by itself. And then he had a newspaper column. uh, He had an extensive correspondence. He even wrote poetry about politics, right? So all by itself, that made him amazing. But the best part of him is at the beginning of the book, you meet French. And the book isn't explicitly about him. He is, as Carol suggested, more of a guide. You meet him at the beginning, and he comes to Congress as a, what at the time would have been called a doe-faced Democrat, meaning he would do anything to appease the South. He would appease them on slavery and everything else to hold the Union together. So he would do anything to appease Southerners. And he was also this guy who, you know, people on both sides of the aisle and both sides of the House, everybody liked him. At the end of the book, he goes out to buy a gun in case he needs to shoot some Southerners. <laughs> that is the arc of the that story. That is the arc right? of the story. Right. So, but I thought, if I can show, if you can travel with this person and understand how this person went from point A to point B, that's a different way of getting at the coming of the Civil War. That's kind of a ground-level personal way. So uh, both of those reasons, uh, in many ways, Benjamin Brown French became kind of a, a hero, and he, he kept delivering, right? He kept giving me, I would, I would say, please say something about disunion, and then I would discover he wrote a poem about disunion. <laughs> he did. So you argue very persuasively that 
the violence in Congress, and, and she's really talking about real violence. She's not talking about vocal violence. She's talking about being hit on the head with a poker and challenges to a duel and fist fights. That congressional violence was of a piece with the violence in the world of politics outside the halls of Congress. Can you elaborate on on this for the audience? Because this really seems to be one of the critical points of the book. Yeah, well, certainly the period, 1830 to 1860, it's a period of enormous growth for the nation, and that involves two enormous violent things. One is slavery expanding, and the other is Native Americans and basically taking their land. So already by itself, the nation is kind of grounded on sweeping violence. And then politics in this period was really violent generally. You know, there's an election in the book that French mentions, and like in the 1850s, and he says something like, only one person died this year <laughs> at the election. There would be riots and, you know, actually a lot of nativist riots and all, all kinds of things. So politics was violent. America was violent. And Congress is representative. And then you throw into that the fact that Southerners were much more comfortable with man-to-man violence than Northerners. And they brought that to Congress with them and deployed it usefully in Congress. So uh, there's, there are a lot of reasons for the violence. It just took a particular form in Congress. Now, you say that there was an unspoken agreement not to share the knowledge of this violence in Congress with the general public. Why? And do you suspect, I, I can't resist because when you read this book, you'll be putting in the margin notes about modern America we haven't even gotten to fake news yet. Not on purpose. Uh, so do you suspect we're being protected from anything similar today? <laughs> yeah. I'd um, really like to see McConnell and, you know, uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi duke it out. Right? A lot of people have their two favorite congressmen that they want to see fighting in one way or another. So this is true. Um, you know, I, for a time when I was working on the book, um, I calculated in um, the press was growing, but it, it was limited, and there were all kinds of reasons why I thought it would be possible to censor this information out of the record. And, and I should add, the way I know it's censored out of the record is, first off, <laughs> it wasn't there. So all the things I'm writing about, I pieced together by looking at diaries and private letters, and you know, then I discovered there's like a code um, in, in the record. The record will say something like, the debate became unpleasantly personal at one point. <laughs> and in one case, one guy pulled a gun on another guy. So that's unpleasantly personal. So once I knew that, I could kind of put it together. Um, I just lost track of where my question was going. It was... Did, why did they not oh, want the public to know? Yeah, so, so they, they did not want the public to know. They did not want Congress to look bad. The press wasn't objective in this period, so they wanted to please their congressmen and their party so that they would support them. Congress gave them printing contracts. That, so there were all kinds of reasons why they didn't want to say it. And there, there were one or two instances. There's one particularly flamboyant Virginia congressman who I could almost count on to do what he was not supposed to do and then get yelled at, <laughs> which I was maybe very happy. So at one point, he mentions being in a committee room uh, and someone pulling a gun on another person in a committee room and someone else on the floor says, shh, like, don't let the secrets of the prison house out or something like that. It's like, thank you. Okay. Well, clearly we're not supposed to know. So we hear so much today about fake news. And there are certainly efforts to disgrace the press and the media today. Can you talk a little bit more about the role of newspapers and newspaper men in the decades preceding the Civil War? Can you tell us about the letter as a propaganda tool, and do any current techniques parallel this? <laughs> I hate to make you be a commentator on modern America, but... Um, well, so the press is pretty central to what's going on in this time period, and it evolves over the course of the book. So in the 1830s, the Washington press community is pretty small. 
it's a handful of people. They sit in the House and Senate and record notes of what people say. They show them to the people who are talking to make sure they're accurate, and that's that. The telegraph, and this is the part where there are interesting parallels with the present. The telegraph changes things. A new technology comes along, and it changes the way public and politicians talk to each other. Suddenly, news is spreading much more quickly and spreading much more widely. And so the telegraph alters politics in a way that politicians can't quite figure out. And so the press has always been important, but now it becomes important and congressmen have lost control of the spin. Mm -hmm. So there's more violence in the record. Now, the letter was a very particular form of, it, it could either be a form of attack, but I think more often than not, it wasn't even quite an editorial. It, it would take the form of, surprise, a letter, um, often to the editor, and it would be sort of an on-the-spot, I'm in the house, and today I, I saw so-and-so do this and such, and you know what they're talking about on the floor? It would be kind of a first-person eyewitness look, obviously very shaded to promote whatever party or person the person wanted to, but... That's something that goes all the way back even to earlier in America, the letter as something that seems personal, so it sort of seems more real, as though, well, it's committed to a person, but it's not signed often by a real person. So it kind of is real, kind of isn't. So they're, they're always looking in this period to figure out how to spread news and how to make news persuasive and convincing in one way or another. And just like now with social media, the telegraph, you know, technology sweeps in and just changes politics. It makes sense that given that democracy is a conversation between politicians and the public, that if a technology changes that conversation, it changes the nation in some way. So there were any number of times when I was writing the book that um, there were like similarities to the present, which I didn't want to be there. And every once in a while, I would, you know, no. I, I, sometimes I would keep cable news on when I was writing, and then I would turn it off because I would be writing about conspiracy theories in the press and <laughs> conspiracy theories. Um, so it, it's striking in some ways, you know, a democratic politics that's polarized. There are certain things that are going to happen. And I think they're happening particularly in the 1850s in, in a similar way that they're happening now. And fake news and conspiracy theories are a part of that. Um, of course, they didn't say fake news. Yeah. <laughs> the difference, it seems to me, is then it was a regional conflict. And today it's more rural-urban. But it has the same uh, fixed in your position and damned if I'm going to give an inch on it. So one of the things, and you'll all, if you get the book, you'll all really enjoy Joanne's writing tremendously. I think you have a remarkable ear and eye for telling quotes and a storyteller's talent for recreating a scene. I mean, French may have done it, but you've done it, I think, better. And you seem to really enjoy recounting some of the totally outrageous behavior in Congress. <laughs> Historians often don't have that much fun writing about their topic. Can you just share some of these stories with the audience? What was your favorite knockdown drag out? And <laughs> did, did you find something that really shocked you? Okay, so my favorite, it's hard, my favorite. There are a lot of good ones. Um, but I think my favorite uh, is, is one that's particularly good, I think, because people notice it as being something that looks different from other fights. So it takes place in 1858, very close to the war. And there's a northern congressman with the wonderful 19th century named Galusha Grow. And Galusha <laughs> Grow happens to be standing amidst some southerners in the house. And something happens that he doesn't like. And he says, I object. Well, there's a South Carolinian politician who's apparently a little tipsy and doesn't like this northern guy who's anti-slavery standing amidst southerners and saying, I object. So he says, go object on your own side of the house. <laughs> and Gro says, this is a free hall, and I don't have to listen to some slave driver. Exactly. <laughs> that was the right noise. So the, the, this other fellow, the South Carolinian, his name is uh, Kit, Lawrence Kit, 
he strides over to Grove, and he grabs his collar to punch him, and Grove beats him to it and slugs Kit and knocks him flat. <laughs> now, what happens next is fascinating. First, a swarm of Southerners who see one of their fellows knocked flat by Gasp, an anti-slavery Northerner, they begin running across the hall, some of them probably to break things up, some of them probably to join in. A bunch of anti-slavery Republican Northern congressmen see one of their fellows getting surrounded by Southerners, and they start running over desks and tables to get down to the place where the conflict is happening. And you end up with this mass brawl with scores of congressmen slugging each other, tossing <laughs> spittoons. I mean, it's in front of the speaker's platform in the House of Representatives. It's a huge, huge fight. And obviously, the implications of the fight are serious. But the, the look of the fight, a big bunch of middle-aged congressmen you know, sort of saying, oh, let me at him. Oh, let me at him. Um, there's a lot of humor even at the time in it. Um, what's interesting about it to me, and I guess why it stands out, is um, commentators who looked at that fight and commented on it said, you know, that fight's not like most of the other fights we've seen. Most of the time these guys get in a tangle and tip a desk or tip over a chair or walk out into the aisle. This was north against south and they were armed. So what they say, essentially, is it looks like a battle to them. And that's fascinating to me because in many ways it was. So this was a, an environment in which guns were allowed, right? And that, guns were allowed and Bowie knives. <laughs> um, and, and Southerners often have one or the other or both. Initially, uh, Northerners were less likely to. And obviously, it's a really interesting question. You want to know how many congressmen are armed. It was really hard to figure that out. Um, and I, you know, in looking at my diaries and letters, I would look for random mention of weapons and take careful note of it. Um, there were two things that, that gave me a real understanding of how many people were armed. One of them is a letter, and I want to say it was like from 1850. Uh, and the Compromise of 1850 was being worked out, and these two congressmen were worried that things were going to turn ugly and people would run down from the galleries and attack congressmen and who knew what would happen. And they guesstimate how many people in the House have guns. <laughs> and I sing hallelujah, hallelujah, thank you, mystery gods. They thought that 80 people in the House probably had guns. Wow. 80 is a lot. Uh, so that was amazing. And then there was an amazing document um, that a lot of people quote, but they quote to me, the less interesting line. So there's a South Carolina congressman toward very close to the war who says something like, um, you know, everybody here who doesn't have one gun has two guns. Everybody has guns. And that quote is in a lot of books about the coming of the Civil War. Well, I went to find the letter. What's really interesting is what comes after that. He says, so I went out and I got a gun and it's in my desk and it's loaded I've never carried a gun in this way before, and I don't like doing it now. But if there should be bloodshed between North and South in the Capitol, I want to fight with the South. Wow. He's not the only one who thought that there might come a, a break. Someone would say the wrong thing, and, and there would be bloodshed. He's not the only one who said, I, there are others who said, I can't go home. What if, what if, Basically, warfare breaks out. So a lot of things like that stunned me. I mean, the, the violence in and of itself is stunning, given that no one's found most of it before. Everyone knows about the caning of Charles Sumner, and that's it. Uh, and there's these 70 other incidents. But once you get past that, some of the implications and the degree of it is, even now, it took me a really long time to write the book. Even now, it, it's kind of shocking. Now, part of your argument is, that because the Southerners were quicker on the draw and more comfortable with violence, uh, I, I always think, coming from Mobile, Alabama, that I should defend the South, but <laughs> I think it's probably still the case, uh, that Southerners bullied, in effect, the Northerners, that the Northerners were, not that they were, Quakers and peace-loving, but they were less comfortable 
with this kind of mano a mano or you know macho behavior and that frequently that really influenced the way they behaved in Congress and that something happens that changes that dynamic that suddenly I mean you give a clear sense that the southerners are bullies and and that the northern congressman at some point decide they won't be bullied anymore. Can you pinpoint or did you pinpoint that moment or was it a kind of gradual development? I mean, it's a little bit of both, but I think there is a general moment when that happens. And it is true that for most of the book, Northerners assume and say all the time their constituents don't want them to duel. And the thing is, Southerners bully very effectively because they know. Northerners, if they fight a duel, their constituents will disapprove. If they don't fight a duel, they might be humiliated, right? And they use that. I call it the northern congressman's dilemma. They use that to pull the northerners into submission. What changes in the mid-1850s is the debate over Kansas. And by that point, enough things have happened that not just congressmen, but the American public are beginning to think in the north that the south is desperately trying to spread slavery throughout the union. And once they begin to believe that, they begin to want their congressmen to fight back, mm-hmm. to de- defend the North, defend their interests. So what changes in part is the constituents. The, the most dramatic example of that is took place in 1856, so it's the same year that Sumner was caned. And it was like a little aside that I found in a newspaper. Um, and it tells a story, it says... Um, Mr. Blah Blah from Massachusetts, I can't remember which which congressman, Mr. So-and-so from Massachusetts was at the train depot heading back to Washington, and a group of his constituents came to meet him and gave him a gift. It was a gun inscribed with the words, free speech. Whoa. They were giving this man a gun and saying, essentially, fight the bullies. Say what you need to say, defend our interests. That... Again, some of these stories that I'm telling, it's hard not to get the message of some of these stories. They're so over-the-top dramatic, yet true. In your introduction, you write, the breaking of national bonds wasn't a detached argument about sovereignty and rights. It was a long, painful process. And I really love that because I've spent a good portion of my academic energy saying people didn't fight the revolution because of some ideological argument that they were there were material real and emotional reasons for these things so would you say that in making that argument and it runs through the whole book that you're writing a revisionist piece of scholarship uh, that it's a radical new way of thinking about about this coming the coming of the civil war i would say it's a new thread of understanding about the war i wouldn't say it's a total revisioning of it but um what it's getting at and this is part of why french is so valuable you see him gradually over the course of the book reason his way into disliking and distrusting the southerners more and more until by the end he doesn't want anything to do with them. And you, you know, it's a wonderful diary. You, you see the process. You see him becoming more and more irritated and less and less trustful of them and then more distrustful and then really wondering about their motives and then beginning to believe conspiracy theories and then beginning to back away from his party and the Southerners. So it, it certainly is showing, in the book I call it the emotional logic of disunion, meaning really the ground level just as you're suggesting, Carol, um, emotional reality of going through that struggle and how it made sense and how you could be in a nation that tore itself in two in that way and follow along with the tearing and and what it felt like. It it was hard. It it, it had much deeper roots, I think, than we've had before. And Mm -hmm. it, it was real in a way that I think sometimes the Civil War isn't the coming of the Civil War is is not considered. It's all that flute music they always play in the background that makes you think that the Civil War really wasn't about feelings. Right. So in your earlier book, Affairs of Honor, which is also a great book if you uh, haven't read it, 
You described the honor culture of the early national era that led to, oh dear, I'm going to mention him, <laughs> Alexander Hamilton's death. Twice, twice. You see, I didn't say, may he rest, as my <laughs> mother would have said. How does the honor culture of the era in the field of blood differ? I mean, is, is there a continuation? Is it that this sense of honor settles in the south and the north moves in a different direction? Or are they fundamentally different in some way? I, I think the latter suggestion that you made is closer to it, which is it becomes seen increasingly as a southern practice. So in Affairs of Honor, I talk about how the culture of honor and ideas about honor shaped national politics in ways that we hadn't recognized before. In this book, there's some of the rituals and the culture of it is similar, but it really is increasingly being seen as as Southern. French actually sometimes refers to Yankee honor, which he sees as something different. Mm -hmm. And because of that difference, that, that feeds right into the bullying. So um, because honor culture becomes somewhat sectional, it, it helps feed into other things becoming somewhat sectional. This is told uh, pretty much from the northern perspective. I mean, you can't read this book without cheering on uh, uh, when the northern congressmen decide to fight back. But how did the southern congressmen see it? Because it seems to me while... Northern has talked about this behemoths, <clears throat> excuse me, slave culture and slave conspiracy slave and power. slave power. Southerners seem to have felt under attack constantly and, and uh, fighting for the survival of their way of life. Did you, were you, do you think you, I, I don't know how to ask this properly. Um, um, do I ever sort of look through there? Yes, yes. Uh, yes. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting. I didn't write the book deliberately from a northern point of view. As you said, it's really hard not to cheer when the northerners finally stand up and start fighting. I mean, it's just human. It's, it's hard for that. But I, I wanted to understand both sides and how what was happening made sense to both Sides. I mean, French happens to be from the north. Mm -hmm. So, you know, certainly throughout the book, um, I was interested in, in what the fighters, what the men were feeling and thinking. Um, this one congressman who let out the secret of someone punching someone in a committee room, he's fascinating because he talks about things like his constituents expect him to fight. That's why they put him in Congress. And he's doing his job. He even says at one point, Someone says to him, um, you ought to be thrown out of this body. You're, you're constantly provoking fights. And he says, my constituents put me here to do this. Go ahead and throw me out. They're going to vote me right back in. So <laughs> it's not as though they're just mean guys, right? They feel that they're defending the South, the honor of the South, the interests of the South. And the other thing is their personal honor and Southern honor are, are pretty intermeshed. So, um, you know, for example, John C. Calhoun is talking about anti-slavery petitions at one point, and he describes them as personally insulting. The, the, one of the ways to respond to them, he says, just to knock the fellow down. He, he's responding to anti-slavery rhetoric as though it is personally insulting him. And that's some of what the Southerners in this book are going through, mm -hmm. is that um, at certain times in the book, they will say, you are degrading the South. They use degradation a lot. Um, how dare you put a northerner in the chair of the Speaker of the House? Do you expect us to sit and be lectured by this anti-slavery northerner? But, but don't they have a point in the sense that the abolitionist literature intensely condemns white southerners and the system of slavery? It is, in effect, would, in fact, be difficult to separate the attack on slavery from the attack on slave masters. Oh, yeah. No, they absolutely have a point. I mean, that's kind of what I'm saying in the book is that both of them, you know, you end up kind of wanting the Northerners to fight back, and hopefully you also end up understanding that, just as Carol is suggesting, there's a logic behind what the Southerners are doing that makes sense. And you see that evolve over the course of the book, too. 
So yeah, it's, in a sense, it's part of the tragedy of the book is that people are doing what they think they're supposed to do. And they think they're listening to their constituents and defending their interests. And it gets them ultimately into war. Do you think they were defending the Southern congressmen when they say, this is what my, constitu- my constituents want me to do? I mean, there are some, I'm thinking about Bruce Levine's books. There are some historians who argue that, in fact, there were Southerners who wanted to get rid of slavery. There were Southerners who thought that slavery was wrong. There were, why do these Southern representatives sound so absolutely certain that this is what their constituents want? Who are they... I don't, I don't, it took, took enough research to do this book. I don't want to say, why didn't you go <laughs> check out the constituents of, but, but. See you in 10 years. Yes. <laughs> take your time. Take Thank your you. time. How, were there Southern newspapers that made this clear? Did these men get elected over and over again? I mean, is there some evidence that, that what they're claiming is true? Well, you know, I think, and that's a good question, because I, I don't want to suggest that every Southerner had the same sort of, I will defend slavery. There were some who didn't want it to spread, wanted to protect it in the South, for example, but didn't want it to spread West. But those people, actually, Thomas Hart Benton. Thomas Hart Benton is someone who didn't want necessarily slavery to spread. He was from Missouri. Well, in Congress, whenever he argues a point that tries to promote that point of view, there's this really nasty guy um, from Mississippi, and he keeps trying to humiliate Benton by proving he's no real Southerner. So he'll taunt him, waiting for him to basically challenge him to a duel or take offense as a good Southerner would, and when Benton holds back because he doesn't want to do that, this, this sort of torturing individual says, are you really a Southerner? Are you really a Southerner? And, you know, back home, he gets some flack for that. So certainly not everyone. There's not like a monument of emotion on any side or a monument of belief. But there certainly is an assumption that there are interests in the South and interests in the North. And that's, a, that's blurry on purpose. And eventually, partly because of conspiracy theories, both sides really believe that the other side is trying to take over everything and crush the other, you know, conspiracy theories are hard to refute because you sound like <laughs> really? a part of the conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, right? the, the weirdness of writing this book in the last two years it was very weird. Um, I would be like, da 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 da, conspiracy theories. It's <laughs> happening on CNN. Um, but yeah, so you know, it, it, even French, and that's one of the points I make in the book. He's right in the house. He's friends with a lot of the congressmen. Even he begins to believe this idea that the slave power is trying to crush the North, and we must do something. We can't allow it to crush the North. You know, and, and he's even friendly with some of the so-called slave power. So it, it's a big bundle of political interests, personal implications. I mean, this is why it's so much fun to write about, right, is, mm-hmm. is trying to figure out how all of those things fit together to motivate people to take action or not take action. And you wouldn't argue, I don't think, that these northern congressmen were all abolitionists. No. I mean, there's not... uh, I'm always amused when I would teach college students that they are absolutely convinced coming into the course and hopefully not going out of the course (laughs) that... Everybody in the North was an abolitionist. Uh, And it's hard to persuade them that this was a small group that many Northerners thought were kooks and wished they would shut up. French calls them fanatics. So when the Northern congressmen talk about the slave conspiracy, what exactly do they mean? That's a good question. That's a great question. Because even though they they do call it the slave power, um, they're not necessarily focused on 
slavery. You know, John Quincy Adams, who after his presidency goes back to the House right. and, and fights against slavery. But what's really interesting is he realizes there are a lot of Northerners who are not really focused on slavery. They're not going to get riled because of the issue of slavery. But they're sure going to be upset if they feel that their representative rights are being silenced by bullying Southerners, if their Southerners don't have free speech on the floor. That's why that gun said free speech. Adams made it a big point. Your rights as Americans, your representative rights, your right of petition, it's being violated by these Southerners. And of course, that does get Northerners upset. So for sure, there are many people who are sincerely and aggressively anti-slavery. And there are many people who they're not quite sure what they think. You know, French has this amazing tangled sentence. He says something like, I'm not going to do it justice. Um, I am opposed to slavery as a horrible institution, but I don't think it should actually be talked about. Yet it should be protected in the South. Yet, it, it, like, he's going phrase by phrase, and he can't figure out the, the logic of it. And I don't think he's alone in that. And I, Adams was kind of brilliant to make it a question of rights, to, to get the North involved. Yeah. I had never thought about that. But, I mean, I know a little bit about Adams's position, but that is he, re he refocused this, right, away from the economics of slavery to the reminiscent of the American Revolution, right? You're taking away, taking away our rights. If, if you had to do it over again... <laughs> Is there anything? <laughs> I know. <laughs> and she I shoot myself, right? Bring that gun out. I will pass out. It, if you had to do it over again, is there anything that you think you would have stressed more or anything that you think you didn't afterwards? I always find when I finish a book, I think, oh, <laughs> why didn't I think of that? Is there something that if... if I always think that books should be done in loosely folders so that as you a, get wiser or have more, you can change what you... Is there something that you think isn't emphasized enough that you now, looking back, would emphasize? Feel free to say no. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the one hand, I would say I can't... There isn't... Well, it's... I suppose it would mean I still don't know. But there isn't a major component of the argument that now I'm like, why didn't I go further into, it, into that? Something that I would investigate further, um, because I talk about it some but not a lot, is how women influence what the men were doing. Right? So I've been talking about the book all over the place, and people ask that question. It's a very logical question. And I talk about how, on the one hand, these men would kind of restrain themselves. There were women in the galleries watching. Actually, Preston Brooks, when he's on his way to Kane Sumner, he sits in the Senate and waits for the last woman to leave the room. I remember you mentioned that. Before yes. he Kane Sumner, he yes. waits for the woman to leave the room. Um, on the other hand, there are some congressmen who look up and see that someone's wife is in the gallery and get more obnoxious. So I, I would probably be more deliberate in trying to figure out the pattern of that, mm -hmm. I think. And last question. I don't think you're arguing that what happens in the Congress causes the Civil War, right? I mean, there are, there are economic issues, there are, there are constitutional issues, there are a whole series of what I always call material realities that even if Congress had not... Uh, engaged in these kinds of fights probably would have, I'm putting on my seer hat now, I predict that there would have been a civil war. In, in a way, it seems to me you're arguing that this is a microcosm of the intensity of the feelings that led to the war. You're not arguing, aha, I've put my finger on why the war happened, right? Right. I'm, so on one hand, I am saying what I'm showing is representative of the State of the Union, and that's what people think when they look at Congress. Like, that's the State of the Union. But I'm also arguing that the press and constituents and congressmen are bound up in a kind of circle of influence mm -hmm. that certainly is helping to shape things. So if the congressmen perform 
and do something really aggressive in Congress because they know the press will play it up. And then it gets sent in the press back home and the public responds and they respond to their congressman by saying, fight. You can see how that cycle could be dangerous. And, and that doesn't cause the war, but it's part of the buildup mm-hmm. to the emotional buildup and intellectual buildup, I suppose, to the coming of the war. It's just a wonderful book, I have to Thank say. You, Carol. Yes. <laughs> I, I, uh, often when you have to read a book, you're, not you're reviewing it, <laughs> you're doing something, you read a chapter, you go in the other room and eat a snack. You, do, uh, <laughs> you, you count how many pages you have to read on Thursday to get to the... Right? There are all kinds of tricks I will reward myself by watching, you know, reruns of my mother, the car, if I, if I, do, <laughs> I, I don't actually watch that show. <laughs> I never watched that show to begin with. Uh, but this book, I just couldn't put it down. I just thought, what a great, this is what history ought to be. Now I'm going to open this up, having now complimented you and seeing you start to blush. I'm now going to uh, go to the questions from the audience. Do you consider Manifest Destiny the start of the Civil War, or does it go back further in time? Hmm. Well, um, so here's the interesting thing about sectionalism in the United States. In, when I was researching my first book, I somehow assumed that when the national government was launched, that there would be at least a little shiny moment when North and South were together and were like, yes, we're going to launch this experiment in government. We're going to cooperate with each other. No. And I remember finding a letter written by someone to James Madison in like maybe 1791, so two years into the government. And he says something like, you know, we got to get Southerners into all the minor clerkships so they'll grow up and take over all the jobs because I'll be damned if I'm going to be bullied around by some damn northerner. It's two years into the government, right? So I, I think there are sectional understandings that weave their way through, and there's not a, a you know, a, a buildup. Things sort of ebb and flow and ebb and right. flow. But right. I, I think those feelings never are never not there, in a sense. I, when I was working on a, a sovereign people, uh, when they wanted, when the Federalists decided to pass these laws that would uh, limit immigration, but more than that would <laughs> talk about a current problem, but would would prevent certain groups from getting the vote too fast. And they passed a naturalization law that said now you had to be here 14 years. And then they passed this uh, amazing alien law that said if the president decides that someone is uh, uh, disrupting uh, the society and government. Someone is dangerous to the the existing order. The president can send them back where they came from, deport them. The Southerners, they were talking about Irish and German immigrants who were flocking to the Democratic Party, to, to Jefferson's party. And to French, in particular, French intellectuals who had come over who were, in fact, in many ways, trying to undermine the existing government. The Southerners in Congress insisted that what was really behind this alien law was a desire to say that slaves, by definition, were disruptive people would disrupt social order. And this was a plot by Northerners to send all African-Americans and Africans back to Africa. And I read this and I thought, (laughs) are they on drugs? What is going on here? And over and over again in these debates, that's what they said. You're going to declare African-Americans to be, they didn't call them African-Americans, to be dangerous to the society, civil society, and that's how you're going to take away our economy. And And this was in 1798. And if you have that mindset and you truly believe that, which they do, you can understand why people will be motivated 
to take extreme action. They're yeah. protecting yeah. their homes, their families, their interests. It's it has that sort of personal defensive right. component to it. Right. I was I, I had to read it over and over again to make sure I was reading it properly and I realized this is when people try to trace the roots of the civil war you stick a pin <laughs> and you say here it is. The, this seems to have been from the earliest phases of, of yeah. the national government. According to a quote attributed to Ben Franklin, as well as stated in the Pledge of Allegiance, we are a republic. Nowadays, we are a democracy. Why the shift and what's the difference? Ooh. Wow, what a great civics question. Gosh. Yeah. Um, I would say we're a democratic republic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, are you a diplomat? <laughs> well, so um, here's an example of how the founders sort of wrestled with that distinction, right? So um, in 1799 or 1800, um, a very high Federalist, uh, so even sort of beyond Hamilton, three times Hamilton. (laughs) Yes. Uh Oh, (laughs) sorry. Um, Named Fisher Ames. Oh, yes. Uh, He writes a lot of wonderful opinionated essays that are great to pull things from. Um, He says, you know... Our government is Republican and our people are Democratic. And one or the other is going to have to, the people are going to have to rise to be a Republic and back away, or the government's going to have to sink down to the level of a full democracy for this to actually work. So, you know, when you look at the, part of this is a matter of words, when you look at the word democracy, that's not necessarily, even Jefferson doesn't necessarily talk about that as a good thing. Right. In their mind, that's not representative governance. That's governance in which everybody is taking place, and it's not practical. And as far as what I have discovered is democracy was dangerous. I always think of Stephen Colbert and our current president talking about my gut feeling that they feared democracy in the sense that the people would vote with their emotions. And the Civil War proved that some of that was absolutely accurate. Whereas the government needed to be rational and and able to have a broader view of things. And so they frequently talked about mob rule, which is what many of them considered democracy to be, as really dangerous to representative government. But here's the thing about democratic politics. Within a democratic politics, it are the, it, it, the freedom and the rights that we cherish as Americans. There are also vulnerabilities, and it is unstable. Mm-hmm. It's part of democracy. So those things are kind of bound together. It's not as though someone was right or wrong in that early period. You, you, democracies take work. Well, and also when they talked about the people, the reason I always take issue with the idea that America was a democracy when it was founded is the people constituted white men with property. And it seems to me, in, in my, just, just in my mind, it's not until after the civil rights movement of the 20th century that political voices were available to people of every gender, and color. That would be the people. Whereas when people in the 18th century talked about the people, they were very specific about a particular privileged, privileged in that they had a political voice. And so this is why I always insist that democracy was not one of the goals of of the American Revolution. But I think a a republic is, a, is, I think, a government in which the governed are responsible for the welfare and safety of the people. I mean, that was and the Lockean, and represented them. That was the Lockean contract, right? Was there debate over the Second Amendment during this era? Oh, wow. I, I mean, given that there are all of these guns, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, no. No. <laughs> you know, um, 
So here's a, a quirky fact. You can use it at your next cocktail party. Um, there's a congressman in the mid-1850s who thinks that there should be a gun rack put in the rotunda so that before people go into the house, they can hang their guns up. Guess who suggested that that was a good idea? The man who came Sumner, Preston Brooks. That's his suggestion. Of course, he then proved you don't need a gun to inflict violence. But no, there is an assumption. As long as you have spittoons and, and uh, 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 what do you call that, irons to stir the fire around, they were always using those to smack people over the head, yes. Uh, were there any, you can see, there are a lot of questions. Yeah. Were there any bipartisan triumphs in the 1840s and 50s? What sort of issues did Northerners and Southerners come together on? It's a, you guys are asking great questions. Yeah. Um, there were. So, and that, that's a really good question. At some point, I say in the book, I'm not meaning to suggest that Congress was always like this boxing ring. You know, they were actually doing things. And at the same time that I'm talking about extreme sectionalism and ultimately polarization, there are people who are trying to work together. Towards the end, when congressmen really, they're all armed and they're so distrustful of the other side that they can't talk, there are congressmen who go out and meet in a hotel to debate what they might be able to do. They can't even do it on the floor, but they're trying to figure out a solution. So throughout time, there are people who are mediators. Now, it's really interesting. Uh, the most, maybe a, an aggressive mediator, the most aggressive mediators tend to be from the middle states because sure. they kind of speak north, northern and southern. southern. So Henry Clay is an example of that. There are, there are, I don't know, five or six people who I talk about in the book who are seen as the mediators. And when something bad is happening personally, they go to these people, but also when they're trying to forge some kind of political compromise, these people serve kind of the same function. So yeah, there is attempt to compromise. The compromise, <laughs> compromise of 1850 yes. is a huge one, right? That, that really people were afraid that there wouldn't be a solution. It, people, the, the public was engaged. When the compromise was finally reached, I talk in the book French comments on the celebration, you know, like the parades and. Um, I think French says it's everyone's duty to get drunk, and <laughs> everyone does. Um, but, it, you know, people really felt that that was a, a, a moment of compromise that probably almost couldn't be reached. Yeah. It, this question is another way of posing the one that I had earlier asked. How did government representatives communicate with their constituents in the antebellum U.S.? Today, representatives and senators are accessible through all-day TV and through social media. How did constituents of the time ensure there were be, they were being represented honorably and responsibly in Washington? Excellent question. Um, I guess a number of ways. Um, there were a lot of letters from constituents to congressmen. I read a lot of letters from constituents to congressmen. Very opinionated letters clearly have a sense of entitlement. You are my congressman, and I want you to do X. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a world of correspondence, so letters mattered. And, and so it's not as though, oh, someone wrote to their congressman. It's like, no, that actually represented a kind of a communication. Also, the Washington community was much smaller. Congressmen didn't have formal offices. Their desk was basically their office in their, this time period. So people sometimes just came to Washington to see their congressman and tell them a thing or two. So that, and in addition, newspapers reflecting what congressmen said back to the public and then supposedly reflecting back to congressmen, public opinion back home. And you can see that sometimes, for real. You can see someone in Congress say something insulting. You can see it in the newspaper. You can see a constituent who's really insulted by it and wants something done about it, and you see that in the newspaper, and then you see the congressman have to react. So you, you actually sometimes, when you're lucky, can see that communication, but it is happening. So, you have now become the, uh, the voice of authority about modern politics. I love this question. <laughs> How did politics get back to civility back then? And how can we do that now? <laughs> Speak, Joanne. 
<laughs> I have the solution. No. Um, so, so a couple things I want to say about that. Um, it's not as though the Civil War ended and everything became civil. Civil, yes. <laughs> Didn't happen. Um, it, violence and the dynamic of conflict shifted after the war. Really interesting. So even just looking in the world of this book, the Southerners secede from the Union. They leave Congress. There's no more threat of dueling. There are no more bullies hanging out. People are initially happy about that, and then they start insulting each other crazily because <laughs> they can't get challenged to a duel. So things get nastier that way. When the Southerners come back and try to play their old game, Northerners basically say, we're not playing that game. You're looking like a barbarian by engaging in that kind of behavior. And the, Southern, the dynamics have shifted. But, you know, Southerners are less violent in Congress. They're sure not less violent during Reconstruction back right. home. Right. So violence shifts, it moves, sometimes it's more extreme, sometimes it isn't. There hasn't ever been a golden moment no. of American politics. You know, I think, I don't have a solution. If I did, <laughs> I would definitely have said it before now. But I do think um, that certainly the founders would have said that one thing that's important in a crisis is the process, the actual process that they put in motion, that when, when there's a crisis and things look like they're going to fall apart, you resort to the process that's been put in motion. That's part of why Madison is so proud of his notes at the federal convention and records what everybody's doing. He's recording the process. Right. So that, for example, when um, in the election of 1800, the presidential election of 1800, really fraught election, there were people in two states arming themselves in case they needed to take the government for Jefferson. They're talking about civil war. It's, it's very fraught. And then finally... It's decided. And someone writes to Jefferson and says, what would you have done if something like that had happened? What would you have done if there was violence or, I don't know, someone seceded from the Union? What would you have done? And Jefferson says, there would have been a convention, and we would have dealt with whatever was broken in the system and then wound it back up and keep going. Right. And I think, I think about that a lot now because, obviously, one of the things that's being... I don't want to say obeyed, challenged in a variety of different ways right now is, is the process. And sometimes that means norms, and sometimes that just means the actual process itself. I looked to things, at some point I did a TV interview, and I, it was before the election, and someone said, well, what are you looking towards? And I said, I'm looking towards this election because that's a real process. Like, what happens in moments of conflict and extreme polarization? Sometimes the process helps settle that, whether it's an election or a Supreme Court decision or a piece of legislation. So, you know, I sort of stepped back and said, I really, really, really hope that this election goes through because that will be meaningful. But, but that's, that's not an answer, but it's, it's a part of an answer, I guess I'll say. I, I, most of these questions, and you'll be happy to hear, our time is up. But most of our, <laughs> because most of our questions, here's one, our current situation is so close to what was going on then. What do you think it will lead to now? <laughs> put, on, put on your <laughs> swami hat and tell us. Uh, uh, well, it, let, me, it, let me say something, not a solution, or what's going to happen next, but something about the similarity. Because... The similarities are striking, and as I was writing the book, they became more so, right? This is a story about extreme polarization in politics, national political parties splintering, people losing faith in institutions of national governance, conspiracy theories being spread in the press. I mean, you can sort of happily march your way through a checklist, there are moments in American history, as I suggested before, I think when people realize there's some kind of fundamental decision being at least partly decided right now, and it really matters. History doesn't repeat. So I say very aggressively, wherever I talk, I don't think there's going to be a civil war. But I do think it's worth looking back at these other times that were like this mm-hmm. and noticing things that worked or didn't work Noticing, for example, conspiracy theories, right? Most people probably aren't thinking about conspiracy theories. If you look back to the 1850s, you sure see things that look like conspiracy theories. That kind of awareness would be interesting if people shared it. So I don't have a solution, but I think the past at least can offer 
understanding. Spoken like a true historian. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.